going through the book of First John, and uh, you know, we've been going over a little bit about the background. What's this? What this? What's going on in this letter? Why is John writing this letter? Well, on the one hand, the issue uh, might be that there's there there are false prophets in the church, and we're, we're going to hit that right up near the beginning this morning. There are false prophets, and they're advocating compromising of the gospel. And uh, there is, I shared last week about the imperial cult. Anybody not know what the imperial cult is? Everybody knows? Okay. The imperial cult is worship of the emperor. And so this worship of the emperor is going on in certain places. It's very strong. And it's leading people to come up with false doctrines so as to not be persecuted. On the other hand, there are those that are teaching false teaching that's that lay, that, that's along the line of Gnosticism. So Gnosticism is this whole concept that physical bad, spirit good. And it really blew up at the end of the second century as a big thing and in, in, infected Christianity in, uh, quite a bit. And there were seeds of it that go all the way back even before um, the first century. Uh, there were there were also what's called Docetists. And these are those that believe that, that uh, Christ was divine but only seemed to become human. And on the other hand, there were Corinthians that believed that Jesus was a human being and the Messiah spirit came on him. So here's the thing. There's all of these different competing beliefs that are going on at the time that John's writing this letter. And so he's writing this letter to, 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 um, to address all of these issues. And there's one point beyond dispute that's going on. The primary troublemakers that are that are in the the church that that uh, John's addressing are what's called secessionists. These are people who have been part of the Christian community, but who have withdrawn from that community. And and John advocates testing the spirits, testing the spirits. And we're going to talk about that a fair amount today. Um, and he gives two tests. He gives a moral ethical test, and that's keeping the commandments, especially the love for Christian community. And the second one is a faith test. Understanding who Jesus really is. So, in the letter, we get two tests for Christianity. Understanding who Jesus is. Understanding his divine nature and his human nature. And having a right relationship with him. And having a right life. How do we live that out? What does that look like if that's true? How how do, do we demonstrate that uh, with one another and in the world? And, and the point he's making is that you cannot separate what you believe from how you live. On the, uh, on the one hand, wrong belief can lead to wrong actions. On the other hand, to claim that you believe something and not live it, that's hypocrisy. That's a, that's a false belief. So this is what's behind the letter. This is kind of the background. Um, how is it structured? Now, what's, what's interesting about this is, um, I mentioned this last week, but you know, some who try to look at it and say, well, it doesn't really fit a letter. It's not like a typical letter we see from the time. And so some say, well, really, then it was written to be a sermon. But it doesn't look like a typical sermon either. John just has his own way of doing things. And, and so it has aspects of being a letter. We know it was a, a letter from certain aspects, but it also has aspects of being a sermon. It doesn't have a clear structure. What does it have? John takes these two tests. And he keeps moving back and forth as kind of a hinge through the whole letter. And I bring all that up because that's exactly what we're going to see in the, in the text today. Last week, he was, we saw the same thing. He's going to talk about, are you living your, a life of love? 
And he's going to talk about, is that reflecting how you understand Jesus actually is, and is he real in your life? And he goes, are you living this life that demonstrates that? And he kind of hinges back and forth between these through the whole letter. Now, having said that, I'm going to have a quote I want to get into this morning. This is from the Evangelical Dictionary of World Mission. Um, uh, and, and it is, if you will, and I'm just, it's a long quote. I'm, I'll break it down as we go. But the whole concept, the reason why I like this so much is it puts in a, in a, in a very concise way what it means for us, what our mission, who we are as believers, what the goal is, what is it God's trying to do through the church, through the body. How do we do that? says this, this is Christ's lordship over every part of life, where people who are in right relationship with God and one another, right relationship with each other, are responsibly managing the resources entrusted by him, stewardship, in ways that show that those resources belong to God, ownership. Relationship, stewardship, ownership. Relationship, stewardship, ownership. What's this coming off of? When we open the Bible and we open it up, we see from the very beginning that we see this God God created this world in which we have these things. We we were in relationship with him. We were created as his family. There was a family in the heavenlies. There was a family on the earth. We were created uh, as um, uh, stewards. We were created in his image to be stewards over creation, to take dominion and to rule over it. And we were created... Uh, as, as ownerships, as those who were living submitted to God. That's the beginning. That's how it was. And then he spends from chapter 3 to chapter 11 of Genesis talking about how it got so wrong and has become so hostile. I mean, if, if you've been watching the headlines at all, how many know that this world is a hostile world? You see... Christianity, the reason why this beats in my heart so much is because it's so easy for us to, to, to get in a bubble in which our Christianity is all about, man, I've got, I've got my little protected self, I've got my relationship with Jesus and I'm going to heaven, man, look how bad it is everywhere. And that is not what John is writing about, that's not what's going on at the time. You see, we're looking backwards here 2,000 years ago to this letter that, that John wrote, and we see it now, well, it's, we call it scripture. We, we, a lot of people think like this was like uh, uh, dropped from heaven itself, and we miss the context of what's happening, and that context is the same thing we're dealing with now. You see, when John wrote this, he had a disciple named Polycarp, and after him, there was a disciple named Arrhenius. And these guys, uh, uh, you know, when, when Arrhenius would go into a church and, and he would meet with the people, the people would literally be hanging on his words as he would repeat, well, John, the apostle who was with Jesus, he told me this about Jesus, and he told me that about Jesus. And they would read these letters that we're reading today, and they were holding on to these things. Why? Because they were living in a world that was hostile. And these disciples who held on to this message of the gospel changed the world. If we are going to be Christians in the world today, we have to have that same faith. We have to have that same heartbeat. We have to have that same understanding. 
This is enough people right here to change the world when you do God's math. That's the import and the impact of the letter that we're reading this morning. That's what's going on. So sin affects life holistically. Relationships are broken. Stewardship is affected and God's ownership is ignored and usurped. How many know that because of sin, relationships are broken? I mean, look, if you haven't experienced it in your own life, which we all have, look around you. How many know that, that stewardship is affected? You don't think so? Why do we complain so much about how bad it is in the environment? Why, why do we, how do we look around at the resources and how is it that so few have so much? Look, this is not a political statement. I'm not make, I'm not trying to get into the politics of this. What I'm trying to do is see us to understand the effects of sin in this world. God's ownership is ignored or usurped. How many people actually want to know, actually want to know what does God want you to do with your life? Not not just say that's what you want, but are actively spending your time, money, and effort to figure that out. Because you believe it. You see, sin affects all of this. So what does that mean? It means that every part of life shows the pain of the fall. Every part of life. Redemption is about reversing all of those effects. It's multi-dimensional. Redemption reverses all of it. You see, God called the community of Israel way back, 3,500 years ago, to, uh, to a shalom life. Micah 6, 8. But he has called the old man, what? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. To, that's, a, that's a wholeness that affects every part of life. To, to, to carry out justice. How many want a just society? To love mercy. How many want a merciful society? To walk humbly with God. How many want a faithful society? And so, so, uh, so GEW, right, sees a paradigm model for the holistic kingdom living of the New Testament community. The promises of a redeemed humanity, a new heaven and a new earth that are promised over and over in the scriptures. It's promised from the prophets of Israel all the way up to the writers of the New Testament. It's in the, la- the very last chapter, chapters of the Bible talk about the redemption, the new heavens and the new earth. They reflect what? God's desire for ultimate wholeness in creation. If God acts holistically from Genesis to Revelation, dare we do any less than that? The mission then is no longer seen in terms of priorities, but as parts of a whole. What we are called to as Christian is not about a priority here. It's not about, well, we need to go over here and get people saved, or we need to have this message. It's about a whole. And what is that whole? The scope of the gospel is the same as the scope of sin. And its effects. Because sin is holistic, it is imperative that the gospel be holistic. We discover three dimensions of the whole gospel. There's three dimensions. First dimension, words that proclaim the truth of God. 
Now, what you'll find is if you, if you look at the church, you can literally d- divide the church up into like big categories. You know, there's a lot of mu- smaller ones, but you can, you, you can divide it up. And if you look at the evangelical as a whole, what does the evangelical world emphasize over and over? Preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. And is that important? Is that part of the whole? Do we need that message? Absolutely. We need truth. It has to happen. You, you cannot be free without the truth. Know the truth and it will set you free. Freedom comes from knowing that. But that's not the only part of the gospel. It says this, signs proclaim the power of God. You can go to another corner of the gospel, another corner of the church. And what do you see? You see emphasize, power, power. We want to see signs. We want to see wonders. I've actually been in places where if they didn't see something, it wasn't a good service. And they emphasize this. Does, does the gospel say there shall be signs following believers? That's in the Bible? Yeah, so if you don't know, the answer is yes. Everybody say the answer is yes. yes. It is a part of the gospel to see the demonstrated power of God. But there's a third part. Deeds proclaim the love of God. There is a whole area of the church as a whole that is what's called the liberal or the social wing. That Very often they deny the power of the, the, of the verbal gospel. But they care about what's going on in society. They care about helping those who are downtrodden. And that is very much a part of the gospel. Deeds that proclaim the love of God. Each part of, each is a part of the good news, but the gospel is not fully proclaimed until all three dimensions are experienced and understood. It is both the truth and love and the power. Any of the three dimensions is an appropriate starting point for missions. The, the word, word is for those who need to know. The word is for those who need to know. How many of us need to know? Deeds are for those who need to have. How many know there are people who need to have? That's what we read last week. Are you truly a believer if you have all this world's goods and turn away from your brother? And then it says this. uh, Where am I? Signs is for those who need to experience the power of God. Has anybody here ever needed to experience the power of God? Oh my goodness. I have needed that in my life. Both deed and sign need explaining. So, I'm so, sorry. Since we live in a world full of unwanted words, well, how many, that's, how true is that? How often if you walk up to somebody and just started talking, they go, I really don't want to hear it. If you've not experienced it, give it a try. <laughs> how many times has somebody come up to you and just started speaking and you went, I don't want to hear it? So very often the starting point then is both deeds and signs. However, they need explaining. And in this way, words have to be a part of it. So in this way, the word that brings faith is received. So we have a threefold mission. Number one is the word. We have to proclaim the truth of God. Number two are signs. We have to proclaim the power of God. And number three are deeds. We need to proclaim the love of God. Can I, let me, let me just give you, here is a personal motto that you can adapt. There's a very personal motto. What does it mean? And I'm actually getting to the second half of the message here, but I'm going to just throw it out here now. Do you want to know what it means to love? It's very simple. When you see suffering and you have the means to alleviate it, then alleviate it. It's not hard. Couple that with the word of truth. Hey, 
Not only can I save the suffering of your body, but I can show you how your soul can be relieved. Couple that with praying for the person and allowing God to move in their life. That's all three. Is that difficult? Do you need a seminary degree to do that? So this is what's going on here in chapter four. This is what's happening. He's, he's going to start with test number one, the right view of Jesus. And what does he say? <clears throat> you need to test the spirits. You need to test the spirits. Here's our text. I'm going to start in chapter three, reading the last verse, because that, that goes in line with the next verses. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. Whoever keeps his commandments, talking about the Lord Jesus, his commandments, abides, lives in God, and God in him. By this, we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So, number one, we're seeing right away, John believes that we are living in a seen world and that there is an unseen world. And in that unseen world, there is the Holy Spirit, good spirit, and there is bad spirits, evil spirit. And he's saying that we need to be able to test them. How do we test them? He goes on, by this, he's telling us, by this you know the Spirit of God. Number one, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Number two, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He said, this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So he's given us a whole mouthful here. Um, I started off and I said this. The Bible assumes that there is both a seen realm and an unseen realm. And, the, and this is what I want us to get from that. The primary means, the primary means of dealing with, we should be down several slides. Um, the primary means of dealing with the unseen is based on how we live in the seen. The primary means of dealing with the unseen is based on how we live. Now, where am I getting that? Anybody ever uh, read uh, 610, the armor of God, Ephesians? Let, let's, let's turn over there for a minute. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I want us to see something. Paul is automatically assuming there is a devil and that he is intelligent, that he is scheming against you, that he is scheming against God. It's automatically assumed here and he's about to tell us how not to fall over. He's about to tell us how to put on armor against that. He says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So he's saying we are in a wrestling when we look at this hostile world around us and we're faced with this hostile world. He's trying to tell us something. There is something going on in the unseen world that is creating this hostility. And he says this, and against the rulers, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but 
against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. There is intelligent evil, and every one of those terms, by the way, in the Greek is a geographical regional term. Everyone is referring to the same terms that we'd refer to earthly rulers, but it's referring to them in the spirit. It's a fascinating study. And so what he is saying is our wrestling, the wrestling that we're facing in the hostility of this world, and this is how we are going to test the spirits. Our wrestling is that's what we're faced with. When we look at the headlines and our heart falls, that's what we're facing. Our battle is not another human being. Our battle is not getting bitter, angry, and hateful towards other people. There is something that is going on, and it is in the unseen, and it is spiritual, and we have been told how to deal with it. How do we deal with it? There Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. So there is an armor that we are given and able to be able to stand and having done all to stand firm. So the first thing it takes is it takes a resolve. It takes a resolve. Standing means what? Standing means when you see that you're not, you say, I'm not giving up. I'm not quitting. I'm not blaming it on God. I'm not turning the other way. I'm not doing what those people that John was writing about. We're not going to try to wiggle our way out of it with sin or false doctrine. We're going to stand for Jesus in the middle of it. Then he says this. He says, you fastened, you having fastened on the belt of truth. So notice the first thing he gives us in dealing with the unseen is dealing with the seen. You're not speaking to the spirit truth. What you're doing is as you hear things that are not true, that falsify the gospel, you turn around and say, no, this is the truth. In other words, to deal with the unseen, you do it in the seen. You live right in the seen world. You live for Christ in the seen world. And that in and of itself deals with the unseen because he's already dealt with it. I hope you're following what I'm saying here. He says this, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If you notice this armor, and this isn't a study on the armor, so we're not going in detail, but if you notice the armor, all of those things are about living right in relationship with Jesus in this world. It's not about chasing down demons. The way to face is to live right, to live in the truth, to live righteously, to carry the word of God, to not be moved, the shield of faith, by what comes against you, by what you see with your eyes, to know that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And he says this, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. So now he invites you involved in the unseen. Notice that the invitation into the unseen at this part is the part in which we are taking what is weighed on us and lifting it back to him. Praying, supplications, laying our burdens on him and giving them back to him, calling on him, interceding. That's how we engage in the unseen, according to Paul in this text. Do you all see that? All right, let me keep going. So we have been given, what's important then to understand is that we have been given the Holy Spirit. 
One of the fundamental elements of the gospel is the giving of the Holy Spirit. We very often leave this out, this aspect of when we preach the gospel. We say, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, know Jesus, get born again, let Jesus come into your life. But when they preach the gospel, you look at, look at almost every time the gospel is preached, they ask, did you receive the Holy Spirit? He will send the Holy Spirit. You have to have the Holy Spirit. Over and over in the scriptures, and that's what John's dealing with here. You have to have his spirit, you need to know it's the right spirit, and you need to be able to stand against the spirit of error. Now this goes all the way back to the prophets. Here it is in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. How many heard of the new covenant before? How many know that's not just communion? Communion is the fulfillment of this promise that was made hundreds of years before Jesus ever did it. He says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, but my my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. So was there anything wrong with God's covenant? No, there was nothing wrong with God's covenant. What was the problem? The problem wasn't the covenant. The problem was the heart. My covenant I gave to them, but they broke it. Then what does it say? For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Okay, conversation for another day, but I'm hanging on to that promise. forgive my iniquity and not even remember it? I wish I could do that. Wow, what a promise. And it all comes because he changes something here. What does he change? Ezekiel, again, another prophet, hundreds of years before Jesus. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new Spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you hear the promise of the Holy Spirit? What does he say? The fundamental message of the gospel is that I will give you a brand new life. I will take your spirit, that hardened stony heart out of you, and I will put a brand new fleshly soft heart that beats for me. And not only that, I won't leave that unpowered, but I will put my spirit in there with your spirit. So that you are empowered, so that you are enabled, so that you could have the inner working of God in your life. This is all promised in Ezekiel. Joel, and I will come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on your male and female servants on those days, I will pour out my spirit. So what's important about that? That same spirit who makes us new was also to be demonstrated outside of us. Also to be demonstrated outside of us. All right. Um. So we're going to move forward here to the Last Supper. We're at the Last Supper here, and I won't have time to cover all of them, but here is Jesus at the Last Supper. This is his last meal. 
This is his instructions to the disciples. This is what he says. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you. So Jesus has asked the Father to give us a helper to be with us forever. Even the Spirit of truth. So he's referring to him who will be with us forever as the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit has always been present on the earth. He's bringing about the knowledge of who God is. The difference from the point of Pentecost forward is he's not only with us, he's in us. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And he goes on in verse 23, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the father will love him and and we will come to him and make our home with him. The father and the son are going to come to us and make their home with us. How? How do they come and make their home with us? Chapter 15, verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. So we're getting a picture here. You have the father, you have the son, and you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, he dwells in us, he makes us new, he empowers us, he demonstrates. And what does he do? He glorifies Jesus. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit then glorifies Jesus. He bear witness about me is what the Holy what Jesus just said but that's not all he had to say go down to chapter 16 nevertheless I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you when he comes he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment So it is not our job to convict the world. It is our job to live the life of righteousness. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict. Now, does that mean you never say? No, sometimes you need to say. What do you need to speak? You need to speak truth and allow the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit wants to do. How many know that you're not the Holy Spirit? You can say that to the person next to you. Just be careful if you're married. He will, he, he will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Remember, the Holy Spirit's job is to reveal Jesus. He will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. The job of the Holy Spirit is to dwell in us, to live us, and make us more, to make us righteous, and we are to live that out. Then the world can see the righteousness of Christ. Not just hear about it, not just read it in a book, but see it because you saw suffering and alleviated it. You found a way to love that person next to you in Jesus' name. And he will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. All right, that's not all he said. Is one more verse he has there at the Last Supper. He's sitting there at the Last Supper with his disciples teaching them, and this is what he says. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears... But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So I want to stop right there, because the Holy Spirit is literally doing the same thing Jesus did. Jesus said what? I didn't tell you one word that didn't come from the Father. I didn't do one thing that I didn't see the Father doing. He says when the Holy Spirit comes, he's not going to say anything on his own, even though he has his own will, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He, uh, uh, he is going to tell you what Jesus wants. Jesus is going to tell you what the Father wants. How do I know that? 
Why? Verse 14. He will glorify me, the Holy Spirit, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Why? Verse 15. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare, declare it to you. And, and Jesus goes on elsewhere and he says, why? Because I glorify the Father. I glorify the Father. I'm trying to get us to understand something. I'm trying to get us to understand that the third person of the Godhood, Godhead, has come to dwell in you and live through you. And that is as much a part of the gospel as receiving Christ to go to heaven, if not even more. And when that occurs, he, get, he will lead you on how to face the hostility we see in this world. But not simply because we just have the Spirit. This message uh, was, was, um, was preached at, at Pentecost, by the way. Acts 2, verse 32. This is Peter in the middle of his message says this, this Jesus God raised up of all that we are witnesses. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, who Jesus exalted, seated at the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Part of the preaching of Jesus Christ coming back from the dead is the life of the Holy Spirit that people were seeing. Part of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ was the, 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 the life of the Holy Spirit that people were seeing in their mix. What did they see? You people are drunk. You people are nuts. You people are crazy. It's like, Peter's like, we're not drunk. It's way too early for that. But oh my goodness, we have been touched by the power of the Holy Spirit, which by the way, he prophesied hundreds of years ago. God is therefore testable. What? God is testable? What do you mean? God, the gospel is therefore testable. But let me tell you what I, what I don't mean by that. I'm down. First, he's not testable based on our desires. I've been, you know, I've been on uh, atheist sites, you know, these forums where you can get on and you can just talk back and forth with one another. And I've heard this over and over. I heard this many times. Somebody will say, well, there's no God. And you know, I go, well, how do you know there's no God? Because I remember when I had this loved one that I was praying for and God didn't answer that prayer and I was going to church, I was doing all things right. I was believing and my prayer did not get answered. That's real. That's not the kind of testing. That's not how we face a hostile world. How we face a hostile world is we go, is, is there anything wrong with praying for that? Absolutely not. I pray that you are. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We should be pouring out our heart before God. We should be laying out there what we feel and how we feel and what's going on. We should be laying it all out there to him, not to test him. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? 
Second test, I don't mean, what I don't mean by it is I don't mean solely based on our understanding. I've had people say, well, if I could only understood why God did this or why this is happening or have some question that's, that's an understanding question. And can I tell you, that's what the entire book of Job is about. What, um, this is a complex question to get. But I want us to stop for a minute. I want us to struggle with this because this will, I think, help us if we get it. How many know that everything that's going on in this world, there is a multiplicity of complexities that are happening? Okay. So, I've watched, um, sometimes, I'm going back and put it this way. There was an old show I used to watch. Anybody ever watch the show MASH? Okay, so there was this one show, and again, I'm not going to remember all the details, but I'll remember it well enough to do this. And Hawkeye wanted something. He wanted something, and he, this other person had it. And so he went to this other person and said, can I, can I have this from you? And said, well, if you can get this person to give me this, then you can have that. So he went to this other person and says, hey, can you give this to that person? And this person said, well, if you get this person to do that, I will give you that. So he went to this other person and said, will you give, will you give this to that person? He said, well, if you can get this for me, I will do that. So, and this literally went on for about a half a dozen, seven or eight people. And, and finally it was all lined out. He's like, ah, it's going to work. And then the very first person decided not to do what they said they would do. What do you think happened? right there it all fell apart and we look at it and we laugh because we understand that level of complexity but when I let me tell you this I want you to think about this for a minute let me tell you what God understands God not only knows every choice and decision that we will make in every situation that we will face He also understands every choice and decision that you would ever make in any potential situation you might ever be put in, in any place in time in history. Can you imagine that level of complexity? Is this making sense? What is that to say? And this is what the book of Job is about. Job is like, why God? Why God? Why God? And God begins to ask him questions that Job clearly cannot answer. The point being is that they are beyond Job's capacity to understand them. They're beyond his ability to, it's not that God's just holding back. It's that if God even told him, it wouldn't even make sense to him. And I'll give you an example of this. I was driving, I have my nephew, my nephew who's now like in his mid thirties and got lots of kids and all that. When he was six, his question was, what's it do? What's it do? What's it do? And so we were driving in a truck. I was helping my sister move from one state to another. And I had James in the front seat of the truck with me. And he was going, what's it do? What's it do? And he points at the clutch and he goes, what's that do, Uncle Mark? And I decided to just play a little bit. And I said, I started giving this technical answer. Well, when you push this in, there's these things called freeze plates. And, you know, it has these differential sizes to them. And and I began to tell him this, knowing full well he wouldn't have a clue what I was telling him. And so I began to tell him this, and he looks at me when it was all over with, and he goes, oh, what's this do, Uncle Mark? (laughs) So what I ended up telling him is this. This is what I said to him. I said, James, let me tell you, this helps us get from Pennsylvania to Maryland. Ah, I can understand that. That's what the book of Job gives us. Now look, that's not, it's not meant 
to be an excuse. It's meant to try to show us that this world is much more complex than we can imagine. And unfortunately, to the heartbreak of God, it is hostile. That is not God's desire. That's not what he wants. How do we know? Because he sent Jesus into it to be our substitution for all of its hostility. But what he wants is for us to trust him. As the Apostle Paul tells us, after going down the litany of all of the hard things he was experiencing, despair, uh, physical uh, abuse, mental abuse, sleeplessness, hunger, he goes through all of that and he says, I'm here to tell you these are but light momentary afflictions compared to the glory that's to be revealed. This is not false hope, pie in the sky, by and by, Paul is trying to give. Paul had actually experienced it in the spirit. It is the kind of faith that it took for the early Christians to say, I understand my message. I understand my mission. I need to speak the word of truth. I need to live and allow the Holy Spirit to move through me through power and demonstration. And I need to act in love. And anything that doesn't meet that test is not Jesus Christ. The third thing is not testable and is based solely on our feelings. Victor? Oswald Chambers, I read this, uh, Eric Vole sent this out in his newsletter, and we're going to finish up with this. Oswald Chambers uh, was a young minister. His ministry was having no effect. And he was having no point in his life where he felt, he's like, if this is all there is to Christianity, then I'm about to just throw in the towel. There needs to be something else. There needs to be something else. And so he, he engaged, he was in a meeting, in a prayer meeting, and this lady pulls him aside, and all she did was pray for him, and she quoted Luke eleven thirteen. Luke eleven thirteen. it says this, if, if, um, if you... Had a son who came to you and asked you for a loaf of bread, would you give him a stone? If he asked you for a fish, would you give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your good heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And this is what he said. This is what he said. Uh, He didn't feel anything. Heaven didn't open up. He didn't have an emotional experience. There wasn't something where he walked away being built up and lifted up going woo-hoo. He just said, that's the word of God. I know it's true. I know it's true. He left that place, and the next time he went preaching, he said, Lord, I'm asking you for the power and the life of the Holy Spirit. Began to preach, and it just touched lives. It's not based on our emotions. Can it be emotional? It can be incredibly emotional. It can be incredibly powerful. God may do that, Maggie. It may touch you in that way, but it's not based on that. And uh, I said I'm closing with this. This is what I'm closing with. There, I close that so I can't go on. Several years ago, you've heard me tell this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. Because that's my wife. That's all I do is tell the same stories over and over. I'm in in a house working in a house with someone and we had all the conversations about is God real? How can you believe this? Why are you so serious? And he comes from a back, from another culture, completely different culture. No background for Christianity. The, you know, you can't say, well, it was just his Christian background. They got him. He, he came from a completely different culture. Didn't even accept that. 
And I finally said to him one day, I said, listen, if he is real, it's not up to me to reveal him. It's up to him. Do you really want to know? That's the question. Do you really want to know? He said, yeah, I do. Well, fine. He will reveal himself. We can get on our knees right here and pray. And so that's exactly what we did. We were working in somebody's house. We put our tools down. We got on our knees. We prayed. I prayed the Lord reveal, reveal him. The next day, the boss put us on two different jobs. We didn't see each other for three months. And, it, and three months later, he came to me and said, he's real. He's real. You see, here's the test. It's given to us in Jeremiah 29. We all know 29.11. For these are the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans not of uh, harm, but of hope, of a future and a hope. But it goes on from there and it says this. If, when you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. When you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. We have a threefold mission. To speak the truth of the word of God, to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit, and to love with the love of God. That's what, that is the test John is talking about right here. Do you know who that true Jesus is? We need to test the spirits. When we test the spirits, what are we testing against? Is that the real true Jesus? Are we speaking the word of truth? Number two, does it demonstrate love? Is love coming out of your lives? And number three, do you have the spirit of truth to begin with? Do you have the spirit of truth to begin with? If you do, he will change you and he will be manifested around you when you ask him to. 